You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you think of world-saving heroes, a few names come to mind. Superman, Captain Marvel, Randy Quaid's character from Independence Day, the usual. But there are real-life people who have saved thousands, even millions of lives in the real world, within living memory, and you've probably never heard their names. All that's going to change today. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Some heroes work hard at it, but for others, it comes naturally. Such is the case for James Harrison. In 1951, a 14-year-old Harrison awoke from major chest surgery in an Australian hospital. Doctors had removed one of his lungs in a procedure that lasted several hours and kept him hospitalized for three months. But Harrison was alive, thanks in part to 13 units, almost two gallons, of donated blood he had received. Harrison vowed that he would become a blood donor to help others, though he had to wait four years before he was old enough. After turning 18, Harrison made good on his word, donating whole blood regularly to the Australian Red Cross Blood Service. Around the same time, doctors in Australia were struggling to figure out why thousands of births in the country were resulting in miscarriages, stillbirths, or brain defects. In Australia, up until about 1967, there were literally thousands of babies dying each year. Doctors didn't know why, and it was awful, recalled Gemma Falkmeyer of the Australian Red Cross. The babies, it turned out, were suffering hemolytic disease of the newborn, or HDN. The condition most often arises when a woman with an Rh-negative blood type becomes pregnant with a baby who has Rh-positive blood. The incompatibility causes the mother's body to reject the fetus's red blood cells. Doctors theorize that it might be possible to prevent HDN by injecting the pregnant woman with a treatment made from donated plasma with a rare antibody, if they could find it. Researchers scoured blood banks to see whose blood might contain this antibody, and found a donor in New South Wales, James Harrison. By then, Harrison had been donating whole blood regularly for more than a decade. He said he didn't think twice when scientists reached out to ask him if he would participate in what would come to be called the Anti-D program. Before long, researchers had developed an injection using plasma from Harrison's donated blood. Every two weeks, for over 60 years, James Harrison made the trek to the Red Cross to donate blood. His plasma has been used to make millions of anti-D injections. Because about 17% of pregnant women in Australia require the anti-D injection, the blood service estimates that Harrison has saved two and a half million babies from death or life-altering disability. 
scientists still aren't sure why exactly Harrison's body naturally produces this rare antibody, though they think it may be related in some way to the blood transfusions he had as a teenager. Through the decades, Harrison has brushed off excessive praise, seeing nothing particularly remarkable in what he did. Countless others, though, do think Harrison is remarkable. He picked up the nickname, The Man with the Golden Arm, along with accolades large and small, from the Medal of the Order of Australia in 1999 to the Guinness Book of World Records in 2003. Harrison made his final trip to the Blood Donation Center at age 81. He was already past the age limit usually allowed for donors, and the blood service decided he should stop donating to protect his own health. In total, Harrison donated 1,173 units of blood. That sure puts my 30 donations to shame. How long has it been since you donated? It only takes about 15 minutes, and there's cookies. And don't be bothered if they have Hydrox and not Oreos. Hydrox are actually the original, and Oreo is the knockoff. Even though Oreo won when the two brands finally ended up in court. Besides, Hydrox are kosher. What did all that have to do with James Harrison? Not much. It's just how my brain works. Like a coked-up squirrel running a maze. The struggle is real. From needles for drawing blood, we move to needles for injections. As someone who didn't die as a child from a preventable disease, I think vaccines are the bee's knees. And most of the vaccines that have kept us alive for the past generation or so were created by one man, who really didn't even want credit for it. Virologist Maurice Hilleman dedicated his life to creating vaccines to eradicate childhood illnesses and improving vaccines that were already available. By the time of his death in 2005 at the age of 85, he had developed more than 40 vaccines, including the measles, mumps, rubella, or MMR vaccine, chickenpox, meningitis, pneumonia, hepatitis A, and hepatitis B vaccines. The fragility of life was with Maurice Hilleman from the day he was born in 1919, when both his twin sister and his mother died. This was the same year that the Spanish flu killed about 5% of the world's population. Hilleman grew up tending chickens on his father's farm, which would prove surprisingly relevant in later years, before earning a full scholarship to Montana State. Majoring in chemistry and microbiology, he graduated first in his class, went on to graduate school, and earned his doctorate in microbiology from the University of Chicago in 1944. When Hilleman started his first job at the pharmaceutical company E.R. Squibb in 1944, American soldiers deployed in Japan were contracting Japanese encephalitis B from mosquito bites. As chief of the Department of Respiratory Diseases at American Medical Center, what's now known as the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research, Hilleman studied pandemics. He was able to recognize patterns in the type and severity of pandemics to the point where he predicted with stunning accuracy where they would hit. When Hilleman and a colleague saw signs of an impending flu pandemic spreading through Hong Kong in 1957, they were determined to stop it. Racing against the clock, the men oversaw the production of 40 million vaccines that were quickly distributed in the U.S. About 69,000 Americans died from that flu, but experts say that the toll would have been far worse without the vaccine. Hilleman received the Distinguished Service Award for his work. If you find stories of underreported pandemics interesting, Google Spanish flu and American Samoa. 
That island was one of the only places on Earth not to see an influenza death, because the governor took the reports he was hearing seriously and blocked all incoming ships from making port. Tangent bonus fact, the 1918 flu pandemic was called the Spanish flu, not because it came from Spain, but because Spain reported on it freely in the news, whereas the opposing sides of World War I both kept the severity of their outbreaks to themselves, so the enemy wouldn't know how badly they'd been affected. Hilleman moved to the Merck Pharmaceutical Company and continued his laser-focused attention on the prevention of disease. Some of these diseases hit particularly close to home. When his young daughter Geraldine came down with the mumps in 1967, he swabbed her throat and collected the virus specimens to take back to his lab. His other daughter, one-year-old Kirsten, was among the first to take the experimental vaccine developed from that swab. There was a baby being protected by a virus from her sister, and this has been unique in the history of medicine, I think, Hilleman recalled during an interview. The strain that Hilleman collected from his daughter that night has reduced the incidence of mumps to fewer than 1,000 cases a year, down from about 190,000. For perspective, that's going from the capacity of Rose Bowl Stadium twice over to half the student body of my suburban high school. And how did the aforementioned chickens contribute? Fertilized chicken eggs were used to incubate vaccines. They're a cheap source of protein and life-saving medicine. In 1963, the Food and Drug Administration granted the first license for a vaccine against measles. Under pressure from public health officials to stop a disease that was killing more than 500 children every year, Dr. Hilleman and Dr. Joseph Stokes, a pediatrician, devised a way to minimize the side effects by giving a gamma-globulin shot in one arm and the measles vaccine in the other. Dr. Hilleman then went on to refine the vaccine over the next four years, eventually producing the much safer Moritan strain that's still in use today. Rather than put his name on it, Hilleman called it Moritan, which was short for more attenuated enders. Attenuated means weakened, and much of the early work on the virus was done in the laboratory of John Enders at Boston Children's Hospital. Another crucial event in the development of MMR happened in the spring of 1963. An epidemic of rubella began in Europe and quickly swept across the globe. In this country alone, about 11,000 newborns died, and an additional 20,000 or so suffered birth defects, including deafness, heart disease, and cataracts, according to the CDC. Dr. Hilleman was already testing his own vaccine, but agreed to work with a vaccine being developed by federal regulators, which he later described as, quote, toxic, toxic, toxic. By 1969, he had cleaned it up enough to obtain FDA approval and prevent another rubella epidemic. Finally, in 1971, he put his vaccines for measles, mumps, and rubella together to make the MMR, replacing a series of six shots with just two. Did I say finally? In 1978, having found a better rubella vaccine than his own, Dr. Hilleman asked its developer if he could use it in the MMR. The developer, Dr. Stanley Plotkin of the Worcester Institute of Philadelphia, was speechless. It was an expensive choice for Merck Pharmaceuticals, and might have been a painful one for anyone other than Dr. Hilleman. It's not that he didn't have an ego, Dr. Plotkin recalled in an interview. He certainly did, but he valued excellence above that 
Once he decided this strain was better, he did what he had to do, even if it meant sacrificing his own work. It's impossible to know exactly how many lives Maurice Hilleman's work has saved. By one estimate, it's eight million per year. Though he was forced to retire at age 65, he continued to work for the greater good, serving as an advisor to the World Health Organization. He was not awarded a Nobel Prize, though many colleagues think he should have been, but in 1988, President Ronald Reagan awarded him the National Medal of Science. But rather than a retirement full of accolade, Hilleman got hate mail and death threats, thanks to the discredited study, and I can't put that in large enough air quotes, linking the MMR vaccine to autism, published by, let's call a spade a spade, absolute con artist Andrew Wakefield. I may be only one tiny podcaster, but Dr. Maurice Hilleman, you have my gratitude. And if my gentle listener is one of the anti-vax camp and somehow still listens to my show, rest assured that I hold firmly to the belief that everyone is entitled to their own opinion. They are not, however, entitled to their own facts. When it comes to deadly animals, sharks, cobras, and anything native to Australia, all collectively pale in comparison to the kill count of the mosquito, courtesy of its tiny hitchhiker, Malaria. In 2008 alone, the parasite that causes the illness, Plasmodia, infected 247 million people and caused almost 1 million deaths. The disease strikes children particularly hard, especially those in sub-Saharan Africa. It affects more than 100 countries, from Asia, Latin America, the Middle East, parts of Europe, thanks in no small part to traveling humans. Symptoms include fever, headache, and vomiting, and malaria can quickly become life-threatening by disrupting the blood supply to vital organs. The single greatest arrow in our quiver in the fight against malaria was discovered by a doctor looking not only to the future, but also to the wisdom of the past. The drug is called artemisinin, and it's still in use today because of the work in the 1970s by Chinese scientist Yu Yu Tu and her team, who spotted references to a fever-easing plant in ancient Chinese medical texts and sought to extract the active ingredient. Because of their work, malaria death rates have decreased 47% worldwide. Tu was born in Shenjing, China in 1930. A tuberculosis infection interrupted her high school education, but inspired her to go into medical research. In 1955, Tu graduated from the Beijing Medical University School of Pharmacy and continued her research on Chinese herbal medicine at the China Academy of Chinese Medical Sciences. Tu studied at the Department of Pharmacological Sciences and later trained for two and a half years in traditional medicine. Tu's entire life changed in 1969. She'd been working as a pharmacology teacher and research scientist at Beijing's Academy of Traditional Chinese Medicine, a unique institute of historians, chemists, scientists, and doctors dedicated to bringing traditional Chinese practices up to scientific standards. When she suddenly found herself the head of a newly formed research project of chemists and pharmacologists at the Institute for the Top Secret Military Program Project 523. Established by Chairman Mao himself, Project 523's main goal was to find ways of preventing and curing malaria. 
For two years, the project had focused on developing Western-style anti-malarial drugs, but synthetic compounds bore no fruit. Project 523 turned to traditional medicine and herbal remedies for answers. This was actually a surprising turn of events. One of the main objectives of Mao's Cultural Revolution was to preserve communist ideology by purging China of traditional literature and art. Intellectuals and scholars were now considered the lowest caste of Chinese society, and scientific research was only sanctioned if the purpose was clear and practical. Two had been specifically chosen, she was informed, because of her unique combination of skills. She had a degree in Western pharmacology, yet she knew how to differentiate thousands of traditional herbs. Two felt deeply honored, especially since she was young and a woman appointed to such a post. She knew the road ahead would be difficult. Strains of malaria were resistant to every available drug, and scientists worldwide had already screened nearly a quarter million compounds without a shred of success. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Also not making things any easier for two was the fact that she was a single parent. Her husband had been sent down to the countryside on a mandatory exchange program for re-education. Tu and her team traveled from village to village to talk to traditional medicine practitioners. Since most of their skills had been handed down orally, the team took great pains to record all of the remedies and treatments. They also combed every available library for any medical texts they could get their hands on. In the end, they had collected over 2,000 recipes for herbal, animal, or mineral-based prescriptions, choosing from these over 600 that offered the best hope for a potential cure. Back in Beijing, her team began distilling the most viable prescriptions 
into 380 herbal extracts they could test on malaria-infected mice. One of their biggest challenges was overcoming the primitive conditions of their own lab. They were forced to use household pots and pans, their facilities were poorly ventilated, and exposure to harsh organic solvents caused them all health problems. In 1971, the team was fairly certain it should focus solely on the herb Qinghao, or sweet wormwood. It was first mentioned as a medical herb 2,000 years ago in a silk scroll from the Han Dynasty called Prescriptions for 52 Kinds of Diseases. Qinghao cropped up frequently as an ingredient in remedies for intermittent fevers, a symptom of malaria, in multiple medical texts throughout the centuries. But that left many unanswered questions. Which specific species of Qinghao? From what region of China? When should the plant be harvested? What parts should they use? Other research groups in Project 523 joined their quest. Through a painstaking process of elimination, Artemisia annua L was found to be the only variety of Qinghao containing antimalarial properties. However, no extract of it produced a consistent positive effect on the malaria-infected mice. Frustrated, Tu turned once again to ancient texts for clues. She reread a medical manuscript from the early Jin dynasty, written in the year 340, that advised, A handful of Qinghao immersed in two liters of water, wring out the juice, and drink it all. It was so simple. The author Gi Hong steeped his Qinghao in cold water, but they had been boiling theirs. The heat had damaged the herb's active ingredient. Her team immediately modified its extraction method, and sure enough, on October 4, 1971, they finally found an extract, sample number 191, that proved 100% effective in curing the malaria-infected lab mice. They then began testing monkeys, and again, it proved effective. Early the next year, they called their new drug artemisinin. The next step was, of course, to begin human testing. To speed things along, Tu and her team volunteered to use themselves as test cases, confident that 2,000 years of Chinese medicine can't be wrong. By August, Tu was able to perform clinical trials on 30 malaria patients. It would take another five years of intensive chemical analysis before artemisinin's molecular structure could be isolated. In 1981, Tu presented the drug at a World Health Organization meeting on malaria, and in 86, the Chinese Ministry of Health granted artemisinin status as an officially approved drug. It had taken 15 long years for Mao's secret Project 523 to produce a cure, but it was one that would ultimately save millions of lives. From the 1990s on, artemisinin gradually took a frontline role, replacing previous generations of the medicines that had lost their effectiveness as malaria parasites became resistant to them. The drug acted fast initially to attack the parasite, but was used in conjunction with long-lasting medicine to destroy the parasites that held out. The chance of dying from malaria was halved from 1 in 5 a decade ago to nearly 1 in 10 in severe cases where people were hospitalized. The World Health Organization statistics show that malaria deaths fell from 2 million per year in the early 2000s to about half a million now. The fight's not over, though. The malaria parasite has a tremendous ability to mutate, causing it to build resistance. 
there are two major examples in the history of malaria drugs losing their effect at the cost of millions of lives. From the 50s to the 70s, chloroquine-resistant parasites spread across Africa and Asia. Chloroquine was then replaced with sulfadoxine pyrimethamine, which I didn't say correctly and after four rehearsals I gave up, which itself lost its parasite-killing abilities and was followed up with the artemisinin. There are reports, though, from Myanmar and parts of Africa that even the artemisinin isn't working as well as it once had, but doctors with the WHO are testing increased doses and combination therapies. There is some controversy attached to the decision to award UU2 the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine in 2015, as hundreds of scientists have been involved in Project 523. But it was two who brought in the Qinghao plant and created the method for extracting the active ingredient, as well as leading the human trials. Throughout Tu's career, she's continued to use the strategy of building on the knowledge of the past to create solutions for the future. She's a research scientist, pharmacologist, educator, Nobel laureate, but considers herself, first and foremost, a lifelong student. Speaking of the knowledge of the past, have you ever looked back in your memory to a popular thing only to discover you've been remembering it wrong the whole time? Like Rich Uncle Pennybags from Monopoly having a monocle, when he doesn't, or Fruit Loops being spelled like actual fruit, which it never has been. This is called the Mandela Effect, and it's the topic of our most recent bonus episode over at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. We have tiers starting as low as $2, and depending on which one you elect for, you can get two bonus episodes every month. Patreon support is a fabulous way to help the show, though nothing is more beneficial to a podcast than rating, review, and sharing, and they are always greatly appreciated. Like to make a contribution but don't want to subscribe to a monthly payment? There's also a PayPal donation button at yourbrainonfacts.com. Every dollar that is generously donated helps defray the very real costs associated with putting out even a small-time podcast like this one. A medical crisis need not be germ-based to spread dangerously. Around 1960, tens of thousands of babies were born with improperly developed limbs, and in some cases malfunctioning eyes, ears, and internal organs. It was a tragedy as had never been seen before, catastrophically striking families in more than 40 countries, like Germany, Japan, and England, but not the United States. The cause of these birth defects was a new sedative called thalidomide, which had been approved in these countries to treat pregnant women with morning sickness. It seemed like a godsend, especially for women with hyperemesis gravidarum, which is like morning sickness gone nuclear and can be a serious health problem. The studies done on the drug before it was approved were limited in scope and didn't reveal its devastating side effects. So why was thalidomide available in Europe, but not the U.S.? Largely because of one woman, Frances Oldham Kelsey. Born in 1914 in British Columbia, Kelsey earned both her Bachelor of Science and Master of Science degrees from McGill University in Montreal. In the mid-1930s, Kelsey wrote to Dr. Eugene Geeling, a researcher at the University of Chicago, asking to work in his lab and study for a doctorate. Geeling replied with an offer of scholarship, addressing the letter to Mr. Oldham. In her autobiography, Kelsey remembers Dr. Geeling as, quote, 
very conservative and old-fashioned man who did not hold too much with women as scientists. His assumption that Frances Oldham was male might have played a role in her scholarship and subsequent education. Quick tip, the female name Frances is spelled with an E like the word her, and the male Francis is spelled with an I like his. There, now you'll never mix it up. In 1938, Kelsey earned her PhD from the University of Chicago and went on to teach there. She married Dr. Fremont Kelsey, a fellow faculty member at the University of Chicago in 1943. Their two daughters were born while she earned a medical degree from the University of Chicago Medical School. Kelsey then worked as an editorial associate at the American Medical Association, a pharmacology professor, and a general practitioner before moving to Washington, D.C. to begin her long and distinguished career at the FDA, where she became chief of the Division of New Drugs, director of the Division of Scientific Investigations, and deputy for Scientific and Medical Affairs Office of Compliance. Kelsey was assigned by the FDA to review applications from pharmaceutical companies seeking drug approval. It was a job she was well-suited to, having already proven herself to be a masterful detective. While she was earning her Ph.D. in pharmacology, Kelsey helped pinpoint a toxic ingredient in another drug called elixir sulfonilamide. Elixir sulfonilamide was marketed as something of a cure-all for everything from gonorrhea to a sore throat, which should always raise an eyebrow. The drug itself was very bitter, so marketers added a sweet-tasting solvent to make it more palatable. The sweetener, Kelsey discovered, was antifreeze. The drug had already killed more than 100 people by the time the FDA was able to get it off the market. Bonus fact, while it is imperative to keep antifreeze away from children and pets, it's a wives' tale that cats will drink it because of its sweet taste. Cats can't taste sweet. Why would they lick it up off the garage floor then, you might ask? Maybe just to run up your vet bill. Trust me to know, I've got seven right now, six of which are inside. It's like living in a furry, angry koi pond. When the paperwork for thalidomide, sold under the brand name Kevadon, hit Kelsey's desk in the fall of 1960, she was expected to immediately approve it, since it was already popular in Europe. Her critical eye, however, quickly spotted holes in the data proving thalidomide was safe and effective, and she rejected the application. The results listed in the application were more testimonials than they were quantifiable science and developers had failed, or refused, to do a placental barrier test, which shows whether or not a drug taken by a pregnant woman reaches the fetus. A chemist working under Kelsey, who spoke German, also pointed out a higher-than-acceptable number of translation errors in the English copy of the application. In something of a baptism by fire, the thalidomide application was the first that Kelsey handled in her new role. And there was pushback as the drug company lodged multiple complaints against Kelsey with her superiors. Nevertheless, for the next 14 months, she wouldn't budge. In November 1961, Dr. Kelsey's careful vigilance was vindicated. Kevadon was taken off the market in its native West Germany and in other countries soon after. In the aftermath of thalidomide's European release, thousands of children were born with partial limbs, blindness, deafness, and or cognitive impairment that is to say those who didn't die in utero, which is thought to be as much as four times as many victims. Thalidomide's effects on fetal development are so dramatic and predictable that doctors could actually pinpoint during which week of pregnancy the mother began to take it 
based on which body systems of the baby were affected. There's a fascinating documentary on Netflix about the legal struggles of the families afterward called Attacking the Devil, Harold Evans and the Last Nazi War Crime. Definitely a good investment for an hour and a half. Dr. Kelsey's refusal to budge prevented the same thing from happening in the U.S. And that's not to say there were zero children of thalidomide in the United States, thanks to drug reps giving out samples without FDA approval. But it was about 1% or less of the number of cases seen abroad. In August 1962, President John F. Kennedy awarded Francis Kelsey the highest honor given to a civilian in the United States, the President's Award for Distinguished Federal Civilian Service. She was the second woman to ever receive the award. Kennedy praised her by saying, Her exceptional judgment in evaluating a new drug for safety for human use has prevented a major tragedy of birth deformities in the United States. Through high ability and steadfast confidence in her professional decision, she has made an outstanding contribution to the protection of the health of the American people. Kelsey helped shape and enforce amendments to FDA regulations to institutionalize protection of the patient in drug investigations. These regulations require that drugs be shown to be both safe and effective, that informed consent be obtained from patients when used in clinical trials, and that all adverse reactions be reported. In 2000, Kelsey was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame, and in 2001 became a virtual mentor for the American Medical Association. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. But I can almost guarantee you this is going to be the first installment of a series. There were at least ten names on my list when I started, but I only had time to cover four, so I chose ones within a theme. I'm really looking forward to telling you about Sadiman, the man who saved his entire village in Indonesia from drought, flood, and starvation by single-handedly replanting a forest. Absolute legend. To hear more stories like these, share this episode on your social media and say, give us more unsung heroes. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds, like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night.